Good morning. We might be few in number, but mighty in spirit this morning for sure, right? You bet. You bet. Welcome if this is your first time or two here, and uh, we're glad that you're here. We don't believe that that's by accident. Uh, we believe that God has, has uh, brought you here, and uh, we're glad that you're in fellowship. Uh, and it's not so much about here. That statement's not so much about here. It's about being with the Lord's people and uh, being in fellowship and, and uh, worshiping the Lord together. Uh, as Jonathan just prayed in this closing prayer at the end of the worship service, the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the last two verses, read this way, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? If you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. We've gotten kind of to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we see the Apostle Paul has been addressing issues of sexual immorality. Seems like there's a little buzz, a little feedback, Kayla. But he's been addressing these issues of particularly sexual immorality. He's been hitting them quite boldly as the Holy Spirit has inspired him to do so. Uh, I don't make any apology. I want to go the same way. Like it's the number one thing in our culture that, uh, that is tearing people apart. It's the number one thing. We'll get into that in a little bit. But here in these last few verses, we find the answer to this question. Why is my sexual immorality, we may ask this question, why is my sexual morality so important to God? He's been talking about it. He's going to carry it in chapter 7. And if you've been anxious to get to chapter 7, just hang on. We're going to get there. I don't think there's any reason where, where we have to rush through just for the sake of going from one to the next to the next and not really bore down into the issues and also bring some application. I believe, we believe, the elders here and the deacons here at New Life Christian Center, we believe that it is important that, that you have the tools, that we have the tools as a body that we can then implement into the areas uh, that we need to implement them right now. That the issues of sexual immorality in our culture, they're not just theoretical, they're real. And so then the points of application, they need to be real as well. Like, who doesn't want traction in areas of your life that you struggle? Anybody? Does anybody? Does anybody everybody, so raise your, I'll ask the question a different way. Who wants traction in your life? Who wants real, applicable means to deal with the issues in your life? Whatever they are, it doesn't have to be around the area of sexual immorality. It can really, it can really cross over into any aspect of our lives. But who, who wants that for their life? Raise your hand. Like I do, Right? Like, I want to know how to battle against temptation that the enemy brings my way. And I, and I don't want to just wait till next week to hear something else about it. I want to be able to deal with it today, this afternoon, right this minute, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon. So that's where the application side of it, I think, is so important. And we're going to dive into that. We are going to get into chapter 7. So, uh, so hang tight. Keep your finger book, uh, stuck in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. We're going to get there. But we really need to know, answer a few questions. And the why question, why is my sexual morality so important to God? As Christ followers, we see even in just these two verses, our bodies are hosts of the Holy Spirit. We are the host. If you're a Christ follower... If you've trusted Jesus uh, to, for the payment for your sins, if he is both your Savior and your Lord, which I'm going to dive into that a little deeper in a minute too, because it's important that it's not just that we're saved, which that is important, but that's not all of the importance. The importance is, is that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord of our lives. right? So we are, we are hosts in a sense. The Holy Spirit, the temple, Paul calls it here. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we get to host God. So God is walking around with you. He understands your thoughts. He understands your concerns. He understands your emotions. He understands all about you where you don't understand about yourself and then some. 
right? He understands your actions. He's with you wherever you go. He reads whatever you read. He meditates, or I wouldn't say meditates, but he understands what you're meditating on. He understands what your eyes are fixed on, what your emotions are going through. He understands all of that. As Christ followers, he's right with us every step of the way. We have to have a moment-by-moment -moment understanding of that reality. The second thing is, is that we're not our own then. We're not our own, and as Jonathan just prayed, we belong to God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So we belong to God. And that's every part of us, body, soul, and spirit. Every part of the Christ follower, every part of the Christian, belongs to God. The third thing is, is that we're bought at that price, as I just mentioned. The blood of Jesus pays for our sins and frees us from the slavery from sin. So, so we have the freedom then that we just sang about through the worship service. We have the freedom then to walk sin-free. And you say, I don't believe it. You might not personally say that. But there's people out there that say that. No, nah, nah, it's not possible. Uh, it's possible. It is possible. I feel like even that, that idea that's out there, that, no, no. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's possible to live temptation-free. Not in this life. But I will, I will say, I think it is possible to live sin-free. And that has a lot to do with where we're going today. How do we get there? What's applicable? How can we, how can we, uh, uh, how can we even get there, you might be asking yourself. Just write yourself that note. We're going to get there. Our sexual morality is so important to God because our chief aim in life, according to these verses, is to glorify God. And that's both physically in our bodies and spiritually with our soul, <clears throat> with our soul, which you can break into three pieces. It's our mind, will, and emotions. And then, of course, with our spirits. That's the goal. That's the, the process. And God was, doesn't want just that to happen in just a spiritual sense, which is good. And it's right, just not com complete. God wants us to glorify him with our physical bodies. I was reminded this last Sunday uh, that we need to encourage one another and that God has a plan for us to succeed. That uh, I mentioned in my service sermon last week that uh, we have the answers, uh, but I didn't get the details of those answers. And so that was, that was the feedback that I got that was a great inspiration for going here today. And, and this fellow said, you told us that we have the answers, you just didn't tell us what they were. And uh, th that's a good reminder. That's good feedback, right? Real good feedback. So we're going to dive into those. We're going to dive into this, uh, this particular, service, uh, particular sermon, which is going to just kind of fold into the pages between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians in a way that this is where it plays out in real life. And in real life, then, we have the, the, the opportunity to apply the Word of God and to overlay that in our areas of sexual morality. Uh, and morality in general, okay? So that's why it's there. What I'm going to share this morning is really one part of a whole nother sermon series that I've kind of been chewing on for a long time, and the Lord just kind of bolted it all together this week. So here we go. Before we get there, though, <clears throat> we believe it's crucial uh, to cover these bases, as I said, and particularly pertain to our current topic. Um, Hebrews 10.25 really is a great reminder. And if you actually back up and highlight in your Bibles, or just, just write yourself a note. Read more than just the one verse uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. Go back up about four or five verses. Read it in context. Uh, but it's a good reminder that we're in this together. Like I might be talking about our current struggles, and here's how that plays out. I might be talking about men. I might be talking about the struggles with pornography. And you might be one that struggles with that or has struggled with that. So the temptation is to be isolated and say, like, God, I just need you to fix this in me. And I really don't want anybody else to know. And, and it's just between you and me. Uh, that's bad theology. And here's the reason why. Because Christianity is a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. Church is a team sport. We're in this thing together as a team. And the end of verse 25 in Hebrews 10 says this. It says, but exhort one another. This is kind of on the heels of like, don't quit meeting together. 
Don't forsake the assembling. No, exhort one another. It's one of the many one another verses in the Bible. Exhort one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. As time's drawing short, as the day of the Lord draws short, right? And this was written centuries ago, but we should still have that same mentality that they have. Hey, time's drawing short. We've got to be in this together. We've got to band together. We need to support one another. This whole thing is a team sport. You don't have to go through whatever you're going through by yourself. Okay? You need the Lord's help, and you need one another's help. And I am in the same boat as you guys. I need God's help, but I know that I need my brother's help too. I need my sister's help too. So Hebrews 10.25, read that whole context. Let's jump into some of the practical ways that then we can encourage and exhort one another. I want to start with an old church saying. Uh, there might be some of us that were old enough to remember this. Back to my comment about Savior and Lord. There used to be an old saying that went throughout Christianity years and years ago, decades ago. And it went this way. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. If Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. That's going to start us off in this first passage that we're looking at. I want to start by setting it up this way, is that God, <clears throat> God is all-loving and all-just. Uh, at the same time, we, can, uh, we, we have a tendency to focus on the love side of God, not the severity side of God, not the justice side of God. We choose to look at that. I wanted to put that out front because I'm only going to actually bring up verses talking about God's love. In this way, First John, I'm just going to footnote them here. First John 4.16 tells us God is love. John 3.16 is God's motivation is love. It's the driving force behind everything that he does. Even the severe things, even the severe things, we can see God's motivation is love. First John 4.7, our motives then, our motives then, uh, to love one another are born out of God's love for us. John 14, 15 says love, <clears throat> the love for God will compel us to then keep his commandments. Often that love, uh, often the love that we learn comes through discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Uh, conversation with one in the body quite a few weeks ago went kind of this way. Uh, a fellow was telling me, giving me a little feedback, that he's always kind of reminded as he disciplines his kids, then and he does it biblically, then how much their affection for him grows. It seems counterintuitive. It seems backwards. We would think as parents, and we often, we often don't discipline our kids out of fear that they will then hate us more. That's, the, that's where it's really at. But God works differently. God works differently. No, when we discipline our kids rightly and biblically, then, then God puts within that child as they're then corrected, as they, whatever happened, if they confess what they did to their sibling or, or what they broke, as they take ownership, and there's, there's some form of metered out discipline in that, and then there's the coming together, there's the, the I'm doing, you know, I'm doing whatever I'm doing as a parent because I love you and because I care for you. And then from that point forward, you'll see, you'll see this change of attitude. And, and sooner or later, sooner or later, that kid will kind of fold back around and start talking to you. Uh, for us, raising our kids, those conversations happened usually right before bedtime. That was just the pattern in our family. That when there was time for confession, when there was time for real questions, when there was curiosities that were coming out with the kids, uh, it happened right before bedtime. Now, <clears throat> we've long supposed that maybe they just didn't want to go to bed. <laughs> uh, now it's out of our hands. But, but uh, we took the opportunity, regardless of what time of the evening it was, to sit and talk with our kids. I've put this diagram together. Kayla, do you have it up on the screen? This is really uh, what I was talking about when I was talking about a, a different sermon series. But I think it's important uh, 
The letters are on the outside, so if you have God in the middle, I'll step out here, we'll all look at it together, and hopefully the microphone won't give us a bunch of feedback. So, the, so with God in the middle, God in the middle of everything, uh, the different aspects of our life are kind of, can be summarized in these four categories. Uh, authority and accountability, community and character, truth and transparency, service and sacrifice. And God works with us in these ways. He, he, he works with us in these different areas. We're just going to actually look at the first two at the very top. And if you'll notice, there's a pattern to them. If you go from the top clockwise, you'll notice you can put together an acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, ACTS. I'm not going to dive into the whole series now, but I think it's important, especially that we pick up these principles on how God grows us, which is spiritual maturity, and then how we grow together, which is relational maturity. Now, keep in mind, don't, don't get overwhelmed with this. Keep in mind that our general topic that we're talking about is in the area of sexual immorality, because that's where Paul is back to 1 Corinthians 6. Okay? These things make a difference. What you understand about God, his interactions with you, you're choosing to yield or not. Uh, you're choosing to follow God or not. They all play out in this area. Okay? And we all have proclivities. When you see the word authority up on the board, your first proclivity, your first instinct might be like, can't stand authority. Maybe you've been hurt by authority. Right? Uh, maybe it's this idea of accountability. Nope. Nope, just me and God, right? And, and, and in your mindset, you're only accountable to God. It's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible teaches, right? So these are both interactions that we have with the Lord. But really, if you boil it down, you can think of authority issues in other ways, in other contexts. You can think of accountability issues in other ways and contexts. You can think of being truthful and transparent in other ways and in other contexts between you and somebody else and maybe there was conflict or whatever, right? So they're also kind of interpersonal dynamics as well and that's why I threw that in there is that these principles are how God grows us, which is spiritual maturity and how we grow together, relational strength, relational maturity. Let's talk about the A's for a second. 1 Corinthians 6.19, as I read earlier, is, is really all about yielding to authority. Yielding to authority. Let me reread the same two verses. While you're thinking about yielding to authority, you can get my point here. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's a yield statement. Who is in you? That's a yielding statement. Whom you have from God? Yeah. And you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All about yielding to authority. Paul's correcting their thinking. The problem that the Greek culture had, the problem of that day, and, and <clears throat> if you know much about history from there to now, uh, we get a lot, we've gotten a lot from the Greek culture, the Greek mentality. And the Greek mentality was to separate the sacred and the secular. They, were to se they, they, they separated the sacred from the secular, or maybe the better way to put it, or another way to put it, is, is that the Greek culture, what they believed, how they thought, their worldview was to separate the spiritual from the physical. Tell me we don't have that issue today. Tell me we don't have that issue today. Statistics bear out that we live largely the same way as a culture. We have our spiritual life wrapped in a nice little container. And we have the rest of life over here. Right? Our own laws, and, and, and uh, maybe not our laws, but our own leaders capitalize on this, that, that your spiritual life over here is one thing, but that's different than the rest of your life over here, which is another. So you can't say, or some would say, you can't say certain things in the workplace. 
You can't, you can't have certain conversations in the workplace because that's a spiritual conversation that needs to be contained a Sunday morning for a two or three hour block or maybe a Wednesday night service and that it's not appropriate in the workplace. Now, I would, on that note, I would caution you, if you want to share the gospel with somebody at work, don't short your employer for the time that they're paying you because then you're violating the word too. <laughs> but we can't live this separated life as Christ followers. We can't live this separated life. All of 1 Corinthians is essentially a corrective letter with this emphasis where Paul is saying, hey, 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 we, God's in every aspect, the sacred and the secular, the spiritual and the physical. And if you look at where we've been so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and actually uh, chapter 5, actually, all of chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians, deals with personal purity. Personal purity. It's perhaps where we have our greatest victories and unfortunately some of our worst defeats in life. It's true. It's really true. Chapter 7 is dealing with marital purity. It's where both of these areas really are where we can have some of the greatest victories, some of the highest highs in life. You think back to your, if you're married, you think back to your wedding day, you think back to when your kids were born, you think back to the parties, the anniversaries, the get-togethers, the celebrations, all that went with all of that, you will say, you can say for yourself that, yeah, man, that was, those are awesome times. Those are great wins in life, great victories in life. Unfortunately, all of us have been affected at some level by when these personal purity issues and marital purity issues fall apart. And those are the times that we struggle with our greatest defeats. Where it looks like the enemy's just literally kicking our teeth in and swallowing up either us or people around us in large bites and everything seems to be falling through the floor. So not only are these areas greatest victories or defeats, it's definitely the area I believe that the enemy is the most effective when it comes to temptation. Guys and gals. Purity issues are not just a guy issue. They're an everybody issue. And we have to own up to that. And we have to uh, get our hands and our head around that. And then we need to walk forward inside the culture. We can't live in isolation. So for the Christian, the answer, <clears throat> getting back to some of the answers that I didn't talk about last week, the answers are really found inside of God's authority and his accountability. So first let's talk about authority. Uh, biblically speaking, God, and uh, practically speaking, God has all authority in our lives. That's what comes out of those last two verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You're not your own. If you're a Christ follower, you are not your own. Right? That means, all the, that means your whole life is filtered through somebody else's control. That's what that means. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. That means body, what we do physically. That means our soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions, not ours. They're the Lord's for his control and our spirit. God's created authority structures for us to live under. He's created the, the authority structures in our marriage. The husbands are to lead their, their marriages. Created husband and wife equal different roles. The husband's role is to lead. That's an authority structure that God has created. He's created authority structure in our homes, which is essentially the same. He's created authority structure in our civil government. They have reason and purpose that God's uh, given to them. Uh, footnote Romans 13 for that. They're here for our good, not our demise unless we're breaking the law, <laughs> right? So God has created civil authority. It's a blessing for us. It doesn't always feel like a blessing, let's be frank, but it is. Uh, if you don't think it's a blessing, how would you like to be living in Kabul, Afghanistan right now as a Christ follower? That's what happens when anarchy kind of reigns. 
That's what happens. There's no freedom, there's mass persecution, there's this just, just absolute utter chaos in that, in that country right now, right? God's created order for us to live by. And of course, God's created authority and structures of authority inside the church, his church as well. Back to uh, Romans chapter 12. Did I read a verse out of Romans chapter 12? Yeah. For whom the Lord loves, he also chastens and scourges every son that whom receives. So talking about discipline. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. One of the ways that we know that we are truly, uh, <clears throat> that we know, we truly know that we are under God's authority is that we yield to his discipline. I'll pick back up in Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse 7 and read for a bit. It says this, if you endure chastening, disciplined by the Lord, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us, and we pay them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection? There's an authority statement. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Everybody say amen to that. You guys can lighten up your collars like nobody likes to get a whipping. And I've often talked, amen. I've raised one uh, straightforward one anyway. I asked my mom on Mother's Day weekend, I said, Mom, do I talk about uh, your discipline too much from the pulpit? And (laughs) (laughs) now we can lighten the mood. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's way of changing us sometimes, oftentimes, is really abrasive in our lives. Sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes it's difficult. Right? Sometimes it means getting a whooping. There's two principles when it comes to God's authority that all of mankind from the beginning has lived by these two basic principles. You can really sum it all up in, in this regard. Now recall, before I start into this, recall our overarching topic where we're talking about sexual purity. Okay? And, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is, is that God's authority in your life, to the, to the degree that you yield to God's authority in your life, will be the degree of success or failure that you'll have in areas of purity across the board. Okay? So that's kind of the main thing that I want to go with. But <clears throat> there's a way into it, I think. Uh, one of these principles is on the negative side and one's on the positive side. So all of mankind has lived under one of two basic principles. The first one we'll talk about is the principle of rebellion. The principle of rebellion authored by Satan, authored by Lucifer. We see it show up right at the beginning, right in the, you know, chapter 3 of Genesis. We see this principle of rebellion, this temptation that comes out, a temptation to disregard what God said, a temptation for Eve to to not yield to her husband's leadership who was there but not active. So a temptation not just for Eve, really, but for Adam. Do you guys think about this? Through the rest of other than that event in Genesis, you know who gets the blame for that event the rest of the pages of Scripture? Adam does. The fall of man falls on Adam's shoulders as the husband that didn't do what he's supposed to do. Search it out. There's a principle of rebellion here, authored and demonstrated by Satan. Of course, his own story we find in the book of Isaiah. But it's a refusal to be under God's rule. There's some verses here that we'll go through quickly. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 2 uh, Paul is saying, in which, these are things in which you once walked. 
So it's past tense for the believer, but it gives us an idea of where they were and where we were as unbelievers at one time. Ephesians 2, 2 says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Principle of rebellion. Psalms 2, 2. So we have Ephesians 2, 2. And Psalms 2, 2 gives us another look in a broader scope of what's going on culturally or internationally, actually. Psalms 2.2 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the principle of rebellion and world leadership. Matthew 7.20.21 says this, uh, and this uh, passage kind of goes on and on and on. It's pretty familiar to most of us, I would say, but it's, it's a principle of rebellion this way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So we can do all kinds of great things. We can be outwardly rebellious to authority. We can be inwardly rebellious to authority. Or we can, as Matthew seven twenty one gives us a look, we can just not have a relationship, but claim all the goodies for God. And say, look what I did here, and look what I did there, and look how, you know, we ran down and built these houses for this orphanage, and, and we supported this, and we supported that, and we totally missed the mark because we're outside of the authority of God because we don't have a relationship with God. That's Jesus' concern. There's no relationship there. So all of mankind has either been in that camp or is in that camp, or for those that have turned towards God, they then fall, un, fall, <clears throat> excuse me, fall under the second principle, which is the principle of obedience, which is authored and demonstrated by Jesus. And the principle of obedience is simply surrendering to Jesus' lordship and rule. Surrendering to Jesus' lordship and rule. James, who's super straightforward, uh, the book of James, you want bullet points on how to live the Christian life, and just boom, 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 down the list, straightforward, not a lot of extra stories, not a lot of go here and go there writing. James 4, 7, and 8 says this, therefore submit to God. That's a principle of obedience. Therefore submit to God. Resist, res <clears throat> resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In that two verses in the book of James, we see really uh, these issues coming together of the physical and the spiritual. That it's not just about what we do with our bodies that's, or just what we do with our spirits or souls or mind, will, and emotions. That they're, that they're connected together. And James keeps that biblical continuity going together as he lists them here together in a way that's both warning but also a promise straightforward encouragement to submit to God. In Luke, we see another we see another principle of obedience where Jesus, he, it says in verse 23, Jesus speaking, and he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's an aspect of denying yourself. There's an as aspect of, of denying who you were, not that, like you're saying, you're not saying it didn't exist, you're saying I'm not that person anymore. And when it comes to areas of sexual immorality, either side of the aisle, male or female, we have to embrace this principle by coming under God's authority and saying, okay, what, what, do, I, what do I do now? I get it. I need to deal with this issue. This is an issue in my life. Whatever it is. If it's some of the things I mentioned last week, the second glance, the staring through the crowd, you know, uh, lusting after a woman, or if it's, you know, pornography, or if it's online whatever, or you're tempted to, you know, have an affair, or what, whatever the case is, this is the recipe, this is the, this is the application points by which we have to start. This is the starting blocks. Submit yourself to God. Deny yourself. 
Take up your cross and follow him daily. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not going to paint this rosy. It's not easy. It's really not easy if you just try to do it by yourself. Right? Really seems kind of counterintuitive, but the sooner the surrender, the sooner the victory. The sooner the surrender, the sooner the victory. Might take a while. It might be, seem like it'll never happen. It might seem like that surrender is like, why, why did I do this? My life seems way worse now that I'm surrendered to God. From a physical perspective, it seems way worse. And I'm not seeing any victory. God's loving authority over every aspect of our life is the greatest asset that we can have. It is the unfair advantage that we have in the world as Christ followers. It's simply living in and under and with God's authority in our life. And it's especially true in the area of sexual purity. His goal for you is to keep you out of harm's way and or heal your sexual relational wounds. Many of us have not stayed out of harm's way since we were kids. Let's just say what it is, okay? Say what it is. God's goal is to either keep you out of that harm's way, and he works through that for especially our younger kids, many of which are downstairs. He works through parents and grandparents in the community of the church, other believers, to accomplish that. Equally as important, though, is your healing up from past wounds and being set from past, being free from past wounds, which include not just the physical aspect, but being free, emotionally free, from what had happened. Being free in our minds, being free uh, to live a new life that we're called to live. And a lot of people, that's where it gets bogged down. We're past the physical part of whatever had happened. But we get really mired down between our own ears and we don't experience the freedom that God has for us in a complete and a full way. Either way, God's will is clearly understood. Too many people have spent too much time looking for loopholes that help them get around God's clearly stated will for us. Let me say that again. Too many times we look for loopholes. And it's true. Let's just say what it is. <clears throat> we all have a propensity to look for some sort of relational loophole when we're pushed to the edge. Or, parallel to that thought, is the idea that we want to get as close to as close to the edge of the cliff without falling over. As close, we want to, what's, what's the limit? What's the limit? What's the limit on sin? You tell me. Like, how far can I go before I know I'm in sin? Well, if you're asking the question, you're looking for some sort of a loophole to get all you can without somehow making God mad. So we just cozy right up to the cliff. We come as close as possible. For years we had cattle. Uh, mostly my dad ran the cattle side of things. And I came to the rescue when they got out. Um, <laughs> anyway, and uh, my dad liked to use electric fence. So every spring we'd build electric fence. And then you kind of stand back and you turn the cows into the pasture. And they kind of scurry around, and eventually, eventually you're going to have that one that comes up and puts their nose right on it, you know. Bam! Got them. You know. It's, it's a natural thing, in a sense. It's part of our fallen human nature to try to get as close to sin or as close to the edge without falling off. And, and you'll notice, like, I'm right up here on the edge of the step, and, and where am I going to go? You know, and what's going to happen? And our culture, the world that we live in, baits us to sin and then turns around and they'll mock you when you fall to it. That's the type of world we live in. 
We see it all the time. We see it all the time. You can see it with the governor or the guy that's on the outs, Cuomo in New York, right? He's lived this, you know, grandiose life, grandiose life. And it's just, you know, and he's useful and he's useful and he's useful to the point. The minute that he's not useful and is over the lip and falling down the rocks, you know, oh, then all of a sudden the media wants to crucify him. That's the way it works when it comes to our sexual purity. We're baited to the edge, baited to the edge, baited to the edge, and if we fall, they'll make fun of us. And if you don't think that's true, you should go to a high school where there's a pregnant girl walking down the hallway and watch what everybody else says and how they look at her. So if you want a real-life example, that's how it works. It's horrible. It's terrible. That's exactly how it works. We can't be loophole Christians. You can't live your, uh, your life in Christ looking for every easy exit that will give you some sort of gratification on the side and still try to be in Christ. It doesn't work that way. That's a frustrating life. It's either, either you're going to become extremely frustrated or you're going to be really good. You'll be really good at, at back to where our culture promotes, having one type of activity on a Sunday and Monday through Saturday living a different life. That's what I did as a teenager. I got really good at living two lives. But it eventually wore me down. Eventually God drew me to account said, hey, are you going to come under my authority? Are you going to start to live and glorify me? Or are you just going to keep running pell-mell through life and see where it takes you? That was the question I had to answer. So it brought me to a crossroads. It brought me to a decision point. But it always starts with authority. It always starts with the yield of God's authority. Come and follow me is an invitation to come and follow Christ. But it's an invitation to come in under his authority. And if we read the Gospels, if we see anything in the Gospels about Jesus' interaction with his disciples, is they were there, and they served him, and they did what he asked them to do, and they didn't get it all right, and they asked goofy questions, and they were stressed out about who was going to sit where. And they were wondering about, you know, when, the, when Jesus was going to take over the Roman Empire and, and obliterate them and bring Israel. They asked a lot of questions that were important to them. Right? They didn't get it all right. And let me tell you, you're not going to get it all right. Not every single time. Okay? That's not an excuse to not fold back under God's authority in our life. And for a little while, they scattered. But if you want a picture of seeing men come back underneath God's authority, start reading the book of Acts. Because when he showed up in a resurrected body and proved out who he was, it changed 12 lives. Actually, at that point, it changed 11 lives. It changed more than that because Paul tells us later in the first Corinthians that you can go and ask these guys. There's like 500 of them that saw him resurrected, right? So it just changed lives. It just continued to roll and roll and multiply. Don't be a loophole Christian. Don't be the type of Christian that's just looking for the easy out, the loophole, scouring the scriptures, looking for a dot or a tittle to try to make a big theological case on. God's will is very clear. Like if you're unsure, I would actually encourage people to do this. If you're unsure, take your Bible to about a seventh grader and have them just read it to you, whatever passage, and ask them to explain it to you. Because they're not going to come at it with a preconceived notion. Right? If I, I can have Benjamin read me a passage and say, Benjamin, what does this say? He's going to tell me what it says just straightforward off the page, with, without a preconceived belief, understanding, or experience. 
in that area. It's a pretty good test, really. It's a pretty good test to know whether you're just believing or adding to or believing something about a passage of Scripture because that's the way it's always been. That's the way you were taught as a kid. That's what the church generally accepts. Don't generally accept. Double check. Go through it yourself. Find somebody to go through it with you, which leads us to our second part of it. Accountability. Authority and accountability are, are, can be really difficult subjects. But they can really be awesome subjects in as much as setting us free. How does accountability set us free? Uh, how does accountability set us free when God really is uh, holding people accountable? And, and what does that look like? And how does it play out? And it doesn't seem freeing. Again, it's counterintuitive to our nature. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he also will reap. For he, sow <clears throat> for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Pretty straightforward verse. Not a lot of interpretation needed out of Galatians. Paul's addressing issues there in that church of legalism. People wanted to add to the gospel. Rather, he says, hey, this is what happens. Whatever seeds you're going to put in the ground, that's what you're going to harvest, right? Everybody's garden, if you're a gardener, your garden now is about full tilt, heavy production. We're eating corn on the cob these days like it's going out of style and uh, loving it. But when we planted corns, did you expect anything other than corn to grow? Maybe a few sunflowers. I give my wife a hard time. She's got this area about the size of these chairs right here that is a sunflower jungle. And it's like, are we going to do something with that? No, those are my sunflowers. My grievance is, is that they're not the type of sunflowers that you can um, pick and turn into to eat. They're all for the birds. But we shouldn't be surprised uh, when the lemon trees that are planted produce lemons. That's a heavy statement, not meant to be condemning. But the reality is, is that Galatians says here, he that uh, sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. corruption. He who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Just like being under God's authority is both personal and corporate, so is the area of accountability. Our lives are not lived in solitude and isolation. Our lives are to have an effect on one another. Uh, accountability is a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing in this way. That if, uh, if, if, if Josh and I have a relationship, I just pick on Josh because he's there. If Josh and I have a relationship and, and, a, and a growing friendship in the Lord, now obviously you guys know we're kind of somewhat related, but uh, there's, uh, there's accountability there. So, so, so Josh starts to notice a pattern in me that is not really biblical. And uh, it's, it's, and it's important. It's important to him. He's noticing that. He's seeing that. He's seeing this. He's, he's concerned about that. Uh, he's cognizant of how far and outreaching those issues are. So what's Josh's response? You guys tell me. To come to me, right? He should come. As a brother in the Lord, he should come and say, Hey, Mark, uh, I see a couple things here. And, and that's measured, That's that first step of accountability. He's going to come and say, Hey, as a brother in the Lord, I care for you. I, uh, you know, you're important to me. You're important to God. And, and, and I see something that's, that's, that's an issue here, right? And uh, I've seen you now for, you know, whatever, hypothetically, not my issue, but hypothetically, I've seen you now for five days straight packing 30 cases out of the convenience store, you know, one after another. You know, so that's an issue. And he should come and speak to me. At that moment, at that moment, that puts me at a crossroads. Right? Because I can accept or I can deny Josh's measure of accountability. I can accept or deny at that moment. 
Where are we going to go? What am I going to say? If I'm wise, if I understand my Bible correctly, I will see that God is using a brother to correct me. Now, the principle in Galatians 6 is still going to stand true. Okay? There's an opportunity for correction here before it gets too bad. If I deny that accountability, I'm like, hey, it's not your business. It's none of your business. Get out of here. Right? If I deny that, if I shy away from it, if I make excuses, if I essentially give Josh the, the, the uh, you know, the idea that, no, I, I like it here on the edge of the cliff in life. Disaster's not that far away, but I'm good. Right? Then disaster's going to come. Then Josh has an opportunity then to, to live out the pages of Scripture, Matthew 18, and continue in that accountability. But here's the key to it. And here's why accountability doesn't often work out well. In denying Josh's words, I'm denying the interpersonal accountability, but I'm denying accountability on a vertical scale too. I'm saying it's not your issue, but really what I'm saying is this isn't anybody's issue. God doesn't need to speak to this. And other people don't need to speak to this. Mind your business. When I say mind my business to my brother who cares about me, I'm really almost in a sense, I'm saying mind your business, Lord. And that's not coming under the Lordship of God. That's not Savior and Lord. And it really is not about Josh. He's just the messenger. It's then about my relationship, where I'm at, where my character's at, what I'm involved in. It's both personal and corporate, these areas of accountability. Our lives are not lived in solitude. There's over a hundred times in the New Testament where the phrase one another is used. Fifty-nine of those times, so a little more than half of those times, are direct do's and don'ts. They're direct do's and don'ts. One of those, then, is found in James chapter 5. Confess your trespasses. James 5.16 says this. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. See, how it should go down is if I'm blinded by my own temptations and, and fall into some sin, right? Fall into whatever it is, you name it. But we're kind of, remember, our overarching topic is sexual purity. So I fall into that temptation. I always have, and we need to create as a church, and Christianity needs to create in general, an atmosphere for people to come forward. To come forward. See, if I know I'm struggling with consumption, if that's our, that's our hypothetical issue, and the Holy Spirit's already been convicting me, like before Josh even comes, I should go and talk to him. Or somebody. But when he does come, and in that moment, I should see this is the golden opportunity to confess what's going on. Because we need one another. I need Josh's input. I need your input. You need, you guys look at, I almost, I almost had Tony, and Tom, I almost called you to say, arrange the chairs east and west. All of them. And the reason why is if we have those chairs facing that way and those chairs facing this way, you guys can just look at one another. As the body. As family. Because we need one another to live the Christian life. We need one another. I need your input. You need one another's input. I need your correction. You need one another's correction. God uses one another to accomplish his will. The point of this verse is that being honest and transparent with God and with one another is the pathway towards victory pathway towards victory. The point is, is that we need one another to grow. We need one another to, in our own spiritual walks. It can't stop there. 
And here's why I say that it can't stop there. It can't stop there because if, if, if you're just here to take from somebody else or from a group or from a study or even from just a message just on a Sunday, the temptation for you, if you're, that's in your category, or if it was me sitting in those seats in that category, is I would, become just a con, I, w- I would just eventually become a consumer Christian. Yep, I need to go to church. Yep, I need to either smoke. And, and it's all about what I'm bringing in, bringing in. That's not necessarily all bad. But when all there is is just, just me, 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 that will affect your Christian walk. You'll become a consumer rather than a producer. We need one another to grow because when we grow, that's when we start to produce. We need one another in essence, what James is saying. We need one another to overcome sin. We need opportunities within the body of Christ to be vulnerable with one another. And here's why. is because each one of you sitting here, God has given you some sort of something by way of spiritual gifting, some sort of something and I could dig into verses and I could lay them all out. It's not about categorizing the spiritual gifts. Don't hear me wrong. God's given you something for somebody else. And if we don't live in the context of community and in the context of being accountable inside of community, then how do we know? There's, then there's no interconnection amongst us. Do you realize the majority of the spiritual gifts they're spoken about in the New Testament are all language related. Language related. A word of knowledge, a word of prophecy, word of encouragement. Go down the list for yourself. They're language related. And when these conversations don't happen, it's like closing the door on the avenues that God uses to help people overcome sin. That's what a lack of accountability is. And you don't know... (laughs) Let me give you another little sneak peek. You don't know how willing you are to be accountable until you're the one in the hot seat. We can talk a lot about accountability. We can create all kinds of accountability structures. We can do all sorts of fancy footwork in the area of accountability. But when it comes down to real and raw conversations... That's when we find out. Are we real with one another? Are we honest with one another? Our last board meeting took an extra hour and a half last month because we spent an hour and a half just saying, looking around the table, saying, how are you guys doing? How's your marriages doing? Let's be real with one another. Let's be transparent with one another. Are you winning? Are you losing? Can we pray for you? Can we encourage you? And we took an hour and a half of conversation that was a thousand times more important than staring at a list of, you know, a, a bullet point list for a meeting. Just seeing how are we doing. Because if the leadership doesn't have that right, if the leadership of a church, the leadership in a home, leadership in a business doesn't have these components right, Leadership at any level don't have these basic principles correct. Uh, You're headed for troubled waters. We have to embrace godly accountability. God has his own means and ways of bringing that about. We need to embrace it both with the Lord and with one another. As I mentioned earlier, Christianity is a team sport. We're designed for community, which I know that was one of those, and I'm not going to go that far down the list into that sermon series, but we're created for community. Uh, What does that look like? How does that come about? How can I take that statement and make it applicable? Uh, I'll tell you what we need. We need more small groups dealing with sexual sin. They're They're on their way. Let's just put it that way. Like we're working on that kind of stuff. We need more small groups. We need involvement because people need to be set free. Maybe you're one of those people sitting here saying, I need to be set free. Uh, It's coming. Or it's already here. Like, you don't have to wait. Come and talk to us. Uh, 
We need more small groups encouraging and building up marriages. Uh, we had a great marriage class last year, packed out the overflow room. It was awesome. As new, or not a year ago, year, two years ago, two years ago. I'm not very good with the calendar. Uh, it was one of the best things that Tammy and I did, being brand new empty nesters, not having kids at home, right? So just a, a great refresher course, a great, great opportunity to look at things from a little different angle, not having uh, uh, any teenagers in the house. So we need more small groups encouraging and building up marriages. We need uh, parenting classes. Uh, if there's one thing that I keep seeing and hearing need of is that we need, uh, it'd be great to have some parenting classes. See? We're working on those things. Stay tuned. But engage. The reality is like four years ago, I stood right on this very platform and, and I had on the heels of having four or five sets of couples come and talk to me and say, man, we'd love to do a marriage class. No, I'd love to do a marriage class. We get it all set up. We're ready to go. We got the clipboard and the sign up and I make the announcement and everybody's just like, nobody signed up. So we do all the legwork. I'm not, I'm not getting on you guys. I'm just saying, we're going to do all we can do to be available. And the question is, is how important is it to you? How important is it to us as a community of belief or believers here that we take advantage of these things? Take advantage of it. We need parenting classes, marriage classes, small groups, Sunday night discipleship, the <clears throat> all of them. All of them are important, and all of them are great opportunities to live out together being under God's authority and being accountable both to the Lord and to one another. And the biblical concepts of Titus 2, as I spoke of last week, uh, really come to play. In Titus 2, I'll just read it as we close. If the worship team wants to come on up, I'm going to go too long today. I know that many of my messages have been kind of long. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That's where Paul's really, he wrote Titus 2. He wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So there's great continuity in his thinking. And both for Titus and for the Corinthian church, he's encouraging them to reset into proper and sound doctrine. What are we, what are we teaching? What are we doing? Where are we going as churches? He says in verse 2 that the older men should be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, that the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient, and obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the younger men to be, <clears throat> to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorrupt incorruptibility, sound speech, that <clears throat> sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, have nothing, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may be adorned the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That last phrase is really wrapping up, coming in underneath the authority and the accountability that God says, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's a picture of the multi-generational Life in Christ. In other words, grandparents, parents, kids, grandkids, whatever the case is. Uh, I, you, guys, you guys would be, um, maybe not often think about this, but time to time when we have visitors that are here, and they're just here to kind of come and go for a week or whatever. Maybe they're on vacation and they just snuck in because we're close to the highway, so it was easy to get the RV off and park over by the, you know, the side of the parking lot. And uh, from time to time we'll have them come in and say, man, it's really refreshing to see grandparents, parents, and kids all sitting together in church. Like our church isn't that way. And some churches aren't that way. There are old folks, you know, all retirees, all, you know, long in the tooth and silver in the hair type folks. And some of us are that and some of us are getting there, right? Or a lot of churches are all young people. You know, there's all like, you know, 20s and 30-somethings and there's no 
uh, retirees, there's no older folks, and uh, I compliment you guys in that as much as that's, I believe, what God is looking for, multi-generational church, living under God's authority and being real with each other when it comes to accountability. If you want the starting blocks, these are only starting blocks to the answers of dealing in the areas that Paul's diving into. And chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians gets even touchier. It gets even touchier. We're diving right back in this next week into the areas of marriage, into the areas of intimacy in marriage, into the areas of division in marriage. And what do we do? And we've all been affected. We've all uh, had some sort of, of uh, imprint into our lives, either uh, volitionally, meaning we were a part of that, or it's happened to us, meaning we were you know, kind of around the peripheral when it comes to issues in marriage and where those issues go, and how far they go, and how devastating they could be, right? And so we're diving right back into them. I wanted to just pause in our First Corinthians series enough to say, hey, we have to make sure we have at least these two blocks of our faith right, and they're well addressed. Live under God's authority, and live under God's accountability. Live with God's authority in your life, and how that plays out in the different levels and ways and live with God's accountability amongst one another. Would you stand with us as we close with our last worship song?